0: Welcome back, everyone, to the PA the FI way podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and on today's episode, we have two returning guests. We have Shane Foley and Jordan Fisher. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks,
1: Kat. Hello. Thank you.
0: So both of you folks have been returning guests, and I want to let the listeners know if they want to take a listen. Back in episode 16, Jordan was on discussing his book, PA Next Steps. Episode 37, both of you were on discussing the PA Blueprint, which is a book as well that you wrote together. And then back in episode 40, we had Shane on and he talked about sabbaticals. So if you haven't had a chance to take a listen to those episodes, make sure you go ahead and take a listen. But I'm really excited to talk about today's topic. And Shane actually had a good idea to do this topic for today. So thanks for bringing it to the show. And we're going to be talking about Ramit Sethi's money rules. And Shane, what prompted you to suggest this? Why do you feel like that this will be a good topic to talk about today?
2: Um, Yeah, great question. So, I mean, Ramit is someone that a lot of us respect who are in the FI community. So someone who's definitely a trailblazer and really sort of embodies what a lot of us um, are doing. He's very actionable with how he does things and just provides a, a very simple framework. And with these money rules, this is a framework, this is his framework, this is what he sort of uses to live day by day, save, invest, etc. So I just found it super interesting and reading through the list, you know, sort of for myself saying, okay, yeah, I agree with that, I agree with that, these are great. And some of them saying, no, that was not necessarily how I follow it or what I think. But I mean, that's that's the beauty of it is that you don't have to agree with all of them. But this just provides a basic framework for people to potentially work off of, adopt for themselves and whatnot. So I thought maybe we could have a conversation about it and um, sort of see, compare how we do it ourselves. And then the audience can hear that and think for themselves in regards to what they might want to adopt, or um, maybe they'll hear some things from us that they haven't thought of and maybe want to try that out as well.
0: Great. I agree. I think that these rules will be really good discussion points and the people who are listening can certainly decide if they agree 100% with them or if they want to make modifications or perhaps come up with their own set of money rules as well. If the listeners aren't familiar with Ramit Sethi, he is the author of a book as well as the host of the podcast that are both called I Will Teach You To Be Rich and they're both really good if you haven't had a chance to check them out. I will include a link to the book in the show notes as well for you. And then he was also featured on the Netflix series called How to Get Rich. Have you, Shane, or you, Jordan, had a chance to watch that series at all yet?
1: Uh, I have. I'm not all the way through because I uh, my rule is I only watch it with my fiance, so I have to get her in the right mood to watch it. I, I would I would watch it straight through, but I have to find her at the right moments because then I'm like, "So what do you think about this?" And it uh, prompts some fun conversations.
2: Yeah, I'll be honest. I have not watched it. My Netflix binging has gone down dramatically since I had a child, <laughs> so that's the main reason. <laughs> Your choice.
0: Yeah, that's totally understandable. And that is the life update that you've had since our last conversation was that you've had a kiddo. And how old is he now?
2: 15 months and growing. That's super exciting. Yeah.
0: Cool. And then Jordan, I believe that being engaged is an update as well for you too. So that's super exciting.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. And wedding planning currently. So I'm sure that'll come up today.
0: Yeah. Well, good luck with both of those things. That's big life changes for sure.
2: Yeah, Jordan, you bought a house too. Don't forget that.
1: Oh
0: yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Congrats on that.
1: You did all the things. I don't know if it should be. Yes. Yes. The American Dream. Got a dog too. So. Oh, there you
0: go. Nice. You guys are growing up.
2: (laughs) We are right before (laughs) your your eyes.
0: eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought that that Netflix series "How to Get Rich" was really good, especially for introducing the concept of financial independence and trying to build wealth, saving and investing and paying off debt to people who aren't really in the financial independence community quite yet. I think it was a really good kind of introduction series for them. So I encourage listeners to you get your to, husband to watch it. Yes, I did. Actually, he watched it and he thought it was good and, you know, prompted good discussion points as well, too. Nice. Yeah. So let's First, review what his 10 money rules are so that the listeners are up to speed and can identify what they are while we're having this conversation. So the first money rule that Ramit has is always have one year of emergency fund cash. And I'll give just a brief thought on this. I feel like that that's a good rule for a lot of people to live by. I personally don't feel like you need a full year of cash. And that at least three months to six months is a good range to aim for. At the same time, though, having a full year does provide an extra safety net and, you know, it can give you more freedom, perhaps, if you're thinking about leaving a job early or taking a sabbatical as you had, Shane. So what are your guys' thoughts about that first rule?
2: Well, I mean, when we say cash, I mean, cash is the easiest and most liquid asset, right? So that's probably why he says cash specifically, but I suppose it could be, as long as it's accessible, I would potentially agree up to the one year, um, depending on your circumstances too. So you mentioned sabbatical for, for us and for other people, depending on how long having that extra, you know, six months for a total of a year is, is pretty critical, um, but yeah, I think I agree with you for the most part, Kat, with what you said. I think six months is is adequate for most folks.
1: Mm-hmm. And I feel like even a year is a little daunting for somebody that thinks about this stuff all the time um, and that comes at the sacrifice of other things, investing and whatnot, which I'm sure we'll get into. So um, I, I agree with you, Kat. I think a year is maybe a little excessive, but shoot, if I had that, I'd feel pretty good.
0: Yeah, it definitely would. Feel like it would put your mind at ease a little bit more. And again, set yourself up for more options too, where you don't feel like you are pressured to stick around in a role that maybe you do want to leave a little bit earlier than what you were hoping for if you don't have a job fully lined up yet or that you're still in the interviewing process or things like that. And then the second rule is save 10% and invest 20% of your gross annual income. So, what are your guys' thoughts about that rule?
1: Um, I, I mean, I I like it a lot in that it's just I. What I really like about his rules is they are relatively simple and actionable, which is kind of his brand, as Shane had mentioned before. So I I do like that. Could it be more specific? Yes, but like. At the core, these are just very um, broad rules, so I, th- I think it's reasonable to say, "Hey, thirty percent live on seventy percent of your income; um, the rest divert to investing and saving." So, I, I think it's a-, a nice, easy, simple step to start with. So,
2: yeah. So broadly speaking, like Jordan said, thirty percent—that's a great you know percentage to save, invest. Um, I mean, some people will be much higher than that, but at least we want to try to get 20%, 30 percent. Uh, if that save 10% includes going towards the emergency fund uh, and or large purchases, then I agree, that's probably a good amount. The invest, invest 20%, I mean, that's really easy to do um, with your 401k or 403b alone. I mean, you could potentially hit close to that so or even above that if you're maxing it out. So not, not too challenging to do if you know what to do with your money. And so overall, yeah, I think 30% is pretty, pretty reasonable. And you're gonna find people on, you know, all ends of the spectrum here in regards to how much or what percentage they they save and invest.
0: Yeah. And then the third rule is be able to pay in full for large expenses before spending. And he gives the example of things like your wedding, your dream honeymoon, a house, et cetera. So Jordan, with your wedding planning coming up here, what are your thoughts about that rule? I mean,
1: again, I think broad strokes. It's smart. I like it. Um, I is it realistic for me right now? Eh, not necessarily, just because sure. that doesn't factor in the time of things. Like life doesn't always like come in this structured style of yeah. Uh, oh, this and then this and then this. Um, opportunities change, life changes. And so I think shooting for that as much as you can is great, but you have to adjust for reality and it may not be perfect.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think a car could be included in that list. It's ideal if you can pay for a car in cash, but sounds like the vehicle market, even used vehicles, is pretty hot right now. And to find a good, reliable used vehicle, it sounds like they're pretty spendy right now. So you might not be able to even pay for a car fully in cash before you can buy it, especially if your previous one broke down. So I think that that's something to consider. And then I also thought it was interesting he included house in that list, which I don't think you need to pay for a full house in cash before you buy a house because that would be quite daunting. And also mortgage rates, although they're higher than what they had been around COVID, they still aren't astronomically high. So but generally, if you can pay for like a vacation or, you know, a honeymoon or a new toy purchase or something like that in cash, then that certainly is ideal before trying to take out a bunch of loans and things like that, too.
1: Yeah. Maybe it might be smarter to like put a caveat and cap it at like 20000 sure. or something like that, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good thought.
2: This also, too, might tie back into number one with the year and maybe, you know, although it wouldn't fall under an emergency, like you know, if you had a year that gives you more wiggle room to pull some of that and then start to replenish it over time. So whereas if you just had six months and then you had to pay for a wedding, that potentially is going to drop you by 50% of what you had. So now you only have three months, two months, et cetera. So I could see where, and you might want to get six to 12 months of an emergency fund and that'll help with this a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I think that it brings up An excellent point that all of these things are suggestions and personal finances, personal. So you need to make the choices that feel right for you in your current situation. Absolutely. And rule number four is never question spending money on books, appetizers, health, or donating to a friend's charity fundraiser. And I think that this is a pretty good rule to live by. I think that many of us can tend to be a little bit more frugal in nature and can find it hard to spend on those things. But I think it's a pretty good general rule overall.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anyone could put their own four little things in there. Um, But those are great examples.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd put travel in there for myself and, you know, books, health, those sort of things in there. I mean, he does appetizers. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that too. (laughs) But, you know, donating and, and charitable giving You know, those sort of things are always, always great. And I agree, but it's easier said than done, um, just in general to not, or, or to be less frugal, you know, if you have decades of that under your belt and that's, that's how you go about the world or how you have, it's, it's more challenging, um, speaking from personal experience than, than I thought it would be.
0: Yeah. And then the fifth rule is business class on flights over four hours. And I think this could be a good rule for a lot of people if they feel like they have the funds and want to enjoy a little bit of extra legroom, a little bit more perks or benefits. I generally, you know, I'm a shorter individual, so I don't care too much about extra legroom. If it's a relatively short flight, like maybe six to eight hours, but if it's a really long flight, maybe I would consider implementing this rule in the future.
2: Yeah, I, I I got upgraded once because of a mistake by the airline. And I'll tell you, business class was amazing. It was everything I thought it would be and 10 times more. But at the same time, when I see those price tags, I just sort of recoil. And again, going back to what I just said, frugal me is like, oh, uh, that can I really do? I really want to spend four times, 10 times the amount. and. Oof, I like it. I like the rule um, because this is, again, part of Ramit's rich life that he wants to live. So I think we could all have our own version of that, perhaps something like that. But um, I mean, I love the example, but ask me if I'm going to be doing it anytime soon. Probably not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's understandable. And then rule number six is buy the best and keep it as long as possible. And I think that, you know, similar with all these rules, it depends upon what it is, but I think it's a really good rule to live by for several things. Where, you know, if you can buy something that really provides a lot of value, you feel like you will use it a lot, very frequently, and it'll last for several years and be durable, then yes, go ahead and, you know, buy the more expensive option and use it and keep it. Whereas other things in life, you know, certainly the, cheaper or moderate priced item can be just as good as the more expensive item.
1: Yeah. I feel like with this, like in order to make that happen, you have to do your research almost. I mean, especially all of us, I'm sure we're the same that we want to make when we want to make a bigger purchase, we overthink it and wait and do all these things. And I think that naturally leads to that so that yeah, it works out where you get good value. Yeah.
2: The only thing lad to that is buy the best and in parentheses after that, on Prime Day or Black Friday, <laughs> that w- that would be our rule. <laughs> it's like, sure. if we can wait until the times when which prices may go down, like then then it appeases that frugal side too.
0: Totally valid. I like that. <laughs> and then rule number seven is no limit on spending for health, such as a personal trainer or education, such as courses, events, etc.
1: Yeah, another great remit rule that fits um very much with his brand and his personality and <clears throat> I don't think any of us as healthcare professionals would would argue about the health side of that or the education for that matter.
2: Yeah, I mean I think that's spot on perfect. Um you know, I try to try to abide by that one for sure.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great rule to live by. Sometimes easier said than done where you see the price tags and you're like, oh, do I really need to? But I think it's a really good thing that you just shouldn't be thinking twice about that necessarily. If it's really your health or your education that will advance your career or your side projects or things like that, it's a really good rule to live by. And then rule number eight is earn enough to work only with the people I respect and like. I think that that's a good one, too, where you don't have to feel like you're pressured to stick around in a job that doesn't value you or that you feel like is in a toxic work environment or things like that. So I I really like that rule as well. Yeah.
1: And it goes ties back in with the emergency fund side of things that allows you to make these changes. Totally.
0: Totally. And then rule number nine is prioritize time outside the spreadsheet. And Ramid is pretty famous for that rule and that line. He almost kind of pokes fun at people in the FIRE community, so financial independence retire early, where they are so focused on living in the spreadsheet, being money nerds, running those numbers, and being so frugal and not living their rich life outside of the spreadsheet. So I think that that's an excellent rule to live by, too.
2: Yeah, and I think that's been validated as of recent from just sort of listening to some you know, five podcasts and reading some, um, blog posts, like mad Scientist, I think talks a lot about sort of having some regrets, right. Be spending too yeah. much time in the spreadsheet. So actually, I think that one's holding up pretty well. And for folks who have crossed, you know, quote unquote the finish line and, and are retired or whatever, like, I think a lot of them are reflecting back now and sort of saying, Oh, maybe I would just have toned that back a little bit, um, and still got to the same results. Um, but enjoyed myself in the process more.
0: Definitely. I think it's so important that you prioritize your relationships with your family members, your friends, your significant others, as well as prioritize those experience and hobbies leading up to financial independence. Otherwise, you could be burning bridges along the way and just not really enjoying life much until you get there. And then you're looking around and you're like, well, I don't really have many people in my life to be able to enjoy my current life with as well. So it's really important that you do live life outside of the spreadsheet. And then rule number 10, which is the last rule, is marry the right person. And I think that this is important. I think that if you can have some financial discussions when you're dating, then that can certainly be helpful. But if you're like me and many of us, you didn't really understand personal finance or financial independence until you're already married, And then you have to learn how to communicate with your spouse and have those discussions as well. So it is really important that you marry someone that you can get along with, that you communicate well with, and that you can work together on a common goal if marriage is your goal in life as well. What are your guys' thoughts?
1: Oh, 100% marriage is a partnership. And yeah, it is interesting to hear that versus like reflect on myself where I know about this ahead of time, but also similar to you, somebody that's uh, not like trying to live by it as much and kind of working through that and figuring out where to compromise and uh, just making sure you're staying respectful throughout the process.
2: Yeah. I mean, as it relates to finances, it's nice when you're on the same page as your spouse, you know, and whether they're coming into the relationship that way, or you can just talk it through and have these conversations openly. I mean, isn't it usually referenced that finances are the main reason for a divorce or like top three, I think, um, financial um, disagreements. Yeah. So it's good if you're getting that out of the out of the way ahead of time. Um, And then again, hopefully you're on the same page. But if not, at least you can have open conversations, see the value in things, um, and then perhaps meet halfway or whatever. But if someone's a huge spender and someone's very frugal, there are going to be a lot of sort of small and big um, problems that happen along the lines.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's important to just Make sure that you're trying to work on your communication and be respectful of them and try to work together and figure out what your goals are together to work towards too. So now that we covered Ramit's 10 money rules, let's talk a little bit more about these. So I'm curious, out of his money rules, which one do you follow the most religiously and what actions have you taken to ensure you don't break from it?
1: Um, I think I... Do probably number two, and that I think it's nice to have like a certain amount of your income like predetermined uh, where it's going. Now, again, we talked about. This a little bit before we started, in that, t- like 10% saving and 20% investing kind of what does that actually mean? But I, I think it really depends. Like, if you're saving for a house, then it may be 25.5, you know. If life is good and you're just coasting along and you already have an emergency fund saved up, then it may be, you know, 5.25. You know, it's going to change depending on your life. But I think that general goal of having. X amount of the money you make uh, predetermined to go to. Saving and investing is uh, really simple and really smart um, and pays off a lot. And Ramit talks about this a lot and that automation is the key to that. And I couldn't agree more. Having that money come right out of your paycheck to go into your 401k is so clutch.
0: Definitely. It takes the mind work and guessing game and one extra task off of your giant to-do list if you just have everything automated. So I think that automation is huge for sure.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, And that's part of... Um, you know, me and, 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 my, uh, money rule that I follow the most religiously here, which is the the first one, which is always have one year of emergency fund cash. Now I'm going to give myself some play to say six to 12 months, as we were talking about earlier when we just went over it. So it ranges for us, um, in my family. So six months, if we're staying put and don't have any big purchases that we think we're going to do, and I'm going to put a sabbatical under a big purchase, um, because we're not having any income typically at this point when we do those. So as of right now, I'll just say I have 12 months saved and a little bit more than that, even because we don't really know exactly when, but we're going to pull the trigger at some point, not too long down the line and do another sabbatical. So, but we're also sort of just looking at real estate too and going, Oh, can we do a down payment and secure ourselves some housing and maybe a, an income stream there. So, but we follow that and, and, Part of that is just us and wanting to sort of have some feel some sense of control. If I lost my job or something changed, um, you know, medical expenses, um, things like that. But I think back to the pandemic, and I have learned a lot throughout this process. And I just remember seeing so many PAs and other healthcare workers get laid off or furloughed or whatever it was, and those folks, some were paid and most of them were not. And so those sort of things, I, none of us want another, you know, worldwide medical emergency to happen, but if it were, we have confidence that we could absorb that for at least six months and probably, probably more. Um, so yeah. So like I said, number one, the emergency fund gives us a real boost of confidence. We feel very empowered having that sitting there, um, in case we need it.
1: What about
0: you, Kat? What's yours? I feel like number nine is the one that I currently most religiously live by, prioritize time outside of the spreadsheet where my husband and I have had this discussion multiple times where we feel like we need to save and invest for the future but also enjoy life along the way. So we're trying to balance the two extremes there. But I feel like that number four is the one that I want to work on a little bit more along with number seven where – You know, these minor purchases like a book aren't that much money, but I know that it will bring me joy and I'll be educating myself. Or if it's just reading for pleasure, it's a really good thing to do as well. And also just not feel guilty about, you know, wanting to spend money on things like education or conferences or things like that, too.
1: I could have sworn you were going to say business class.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bougie yet. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) in 20 years. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's it's hard to
2: cross that threshold. That's what I was saying before. It's so hard, especially that one. I feel like that one to me of uh, the rules is kind of the most extreme in my mind. Right? I see that. I'm like, wow, ooh, you know, and I, you know, those are probably deep rooted stuff. It says, am I worthy of business class? Am I that kind of person who sits in business class? Do I sit? You know, there are big questions. I think probably underneath that. But yeah, that one yeah. is that one's the hardest one. I think.
1: <laughs>
0: I think so too, for sure. And then as a sidebar, Shane, you mentioned a potential upcoming sabbatical. Do you have places you're scoping out or is that still up in the air or, you know, not public knowledge yet?
2: I mean, there's no set um, departure date. I will say it is approaching and semi-rapidly approaching. That's all I can say because my cards are not on the table yet with work. So sure, um, got to leave it a little broad here. Um, sure. But nonetheless, we're thinking about it. Um, planning stages are sort of initial and we're doing our just sort of like life inventory assessment of who we have and what we have and what we want to do. So, sure. you know, long story short, you know, we have a dog, so we're not going to leave our dog behind. So that restricts us from maybe doing some things that would be like top priority uh, and more fun to us. But She's part of the team, so we gotta figure it out. And we've got a little guy, as we were saying before. So we're just trying to figure out what would work best for the for the whole family. So that's the the planning. There are some things we're dreaming up and but nothing is, is formalized, including the departure date yet. But all I know is it's happening semi soon.
0: Cool. Well, that's really exciting. I wish you guys the best with the planning stages as well as when you finally get to that point and looking forward to hearing the update. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and then going back to the money rules, which of them do you think that everyone should live by?
2: Um, I'm going to be super boring and go back to number one again—the <laughs> emergency fund for the same reasons I was I was um, stating before is that I think we should all have at least you know six months to fall back on, and whether that's just you've had it up to here and you know that can be your um, you know, money to say, see ya, I have the money to absorb this. I'm going to find something better. Uh, or whether it's because of some sort of emergency thing you didn't expect. I just think it's really, really important to have. And, um, I can't reference the exact numbers, but it's a high percentage of folks can't even come up with whatever it is, $500 or something. I mean, it's the majority. And so that's, that is a place that I, I don't want to be as as PAs and healthcare workers. Most of us get paid decently to well. And so hopefully if you play your cards right and and do things correctly, then you'll have that for whatever comes your way.
0: That's great.
1: I'm going to say number 10, uh, marry the right person. Uh, And that's, I feel like really important in that we all talk about investments and how important this is. And I don't think there's a worse investment than uh, marrying the wrong person and then going on to get divorced. Um, So trying not to screw that up.
2: Well said, sir.
0: Yeah, I think we can all identify that that's a really important rule. And like you said, there's fewer things that are worth investing in than your relationship with your significant other. And then which of these rules do you feel like is the most important for those who are more financially naive, just learning about financial independence, as opposed to those who, you know, understand personal finance, saving and investing, and are more financially savvy overall?
1: Number one, start with just having some savings. Like Shane said, so many people can't even absorb a little emergency, let alone a big one. So, I mean, Some, I mean, all we hear about is people living paycheck to paycheck. So if you can just learn not to do that and save 200, 300, 400, 500, and go from there, that's such an easy first step, but such an important first step to changing everything. And to take it one step further, put it in a uh, high yield savings account, which are great right now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, the emergency fund. So the 12 year or the 12 month, 12 year would be great too. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, The 12 month emergency fund. It's a
1: long time.
0: Yeah. That's (laughs) what I was thinking. (laughs) Keep
2: it going, baby. That's the ultimate goal. Around the world sabbatical. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Um, And then number two, save 10%, invest 20% and then be able to pay in full. So you know, for the reasons we've, we've mentioned already, but build that emergency fund. Hopefully you are continuing to automate money into it. And then on top of that, you're investing. So in this case, it says 20%, which I think is a good goal. Um, but then trying not to get yourself deeper into debt as you're paying that down, right? So that's a huge step back. If then all of a sudden you're putting your wedding on a credit card or a new car or, or whatever, and then taking on more debt. So we're trying to move forward and it's not always going to be super linear, but you know, you don't want to take huge steps back, um, by putting, you know, uh, taking on more debt as well. So I think if you were to not sort of do number three or some version of trying to pay for things in full, Um, You're only going to be shooting yourself in the foot or at least like if one of you sort of, you know, five terms, like just sort of, um, you know, elongate your date or make it, you know, later your your, your fire date.
0: Yeah, that's understandable. And then what are some newer rules that you are each adopting for yourselves? And then how are you also implementing those rules?
1: Uh, I am trying to have multiple income streams. Um, I feel like we talk so, so much about saving and investing and all that things. And that's great. But also earning more money is great and helpful to meet those goals. And so many people, most of us are just focused on our one job, our one W-2, and that's great. Um, but people like us are trying to have multiple streams, right? You with PA, the FI way and us with PA blueprint. Um, so, I think trying to figure that out more and more between this, our jobs, real estate, precepting, teaching, all these things, uh, nothing gets me more fired up than looking at like my monthly Excel sheet and being able to put, oh, here's my salary, but also here's the extra income I earned. I feel like that's so rewarding. So having as many of those as possible is definitely like my new rule.
0: That's great. I believe the stat that I recall reading is the average millionaire has. An average of seven income streams. Have you guys seen that or heard that?
2: Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me one bit.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure one of those would be like the dividends off of your investments and you know, things like that too. But yes, it's nice to be able to kind of dabble and try different things out and see what sticks and see where you can feel like you're getting purpose and fulfillment, but also earning a little bit of income on the side too.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with that. So glad to hear Jordan saying the same thing. And obviously, as business partners, we had a similar mindset a while ago, um, but the multiple income streams is definitely a piece that's really piqued my interest. And I just don't want to be a paycheck employee, um, again, for a lot of the same reasons I've already mentioned. But um, I also want to get to a point of, of FI as quickly as possible without you know, falling victim to, you know, number nine and keeping my nose in the spreadsheet too much, but see if I can move things along a little bit faster. I think that's a, that's a great goal to have. And so, um, I mean, that's one of my rules we have, you know, i will talk specifics. I don't, I don't care. I mean, my wife and I have an agreement where any discretionary spending above 50 bucks, we just tell each other, just have a quick conversation, sure. you know, where it's like, well, I don't really need this, but I want this what are your thoughts? You know, it's a hundred bucks. And my wife, I mean, we almost always say, great, go for it. Sounds good. Um, but sometimes we ask each other a question like, well, do you need that? Yeah. W- when will you use it? You know, like it's just enough to hesitate and go, Hmm. Like right now I'm like, I've gone back and forth. Should I get a Kindle? Cause I want to read more. Will that make it easier? But then my wife is like, well, do you have the time to read right now? I'm like, no, actually.
0: That's valid. So
2: that was a perfect example of like, it's, <laughs> Point yeah point. like it's not it's not too much uh money to spend on that thing but it's like actually i prob- I might not use it that much so it's just yeah. that pause um but again 99 of the time it's yeah sure go for it sounds great um so that's one of one of ours another one is trying to loosen our purse strings a little bit um on the things that we value you know living our our rich life and what that looks like so we're just trying to you know Learn how to do that that is actually part of this process too. It's much easier to go with a framework I already know, which is kind of be frugal and save and invest and I'm good with that, and that feels great. The spending piece feels still doesn't quite feel right to me on certain things so we're 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 trying to implement that and then lastly, you know, I just do this thing where I'm always watching or checking accounts, so not too much time, but just usually once a month and Any excess, I just sort of send off to our high yield savings account or put in investing. So I just kind of, it's almost like old school, like, um, you know, check balancing, you know, account balancing, but I project forward and then I see, okay, for the month, looks like we're going to be up, you know, $500. I'm going to take a hundred. So I'm still being safe in case anything else comes up and I'm going to siphon that off to high yield savings account or investing. Yeah. So just a little bit like that. And some of it's already automated, like to our son's 529. Like some of this thing is, these things are already happening, but I just try to even do 50 bucks here, 500 bucks there.
0: That's great. It probably doesn't take you too much time or too much bandwidth mentally to do that, but it very likely will be adding up and compound over time. So that's awesome that you're doing that. Yeah. And then, what are some unorthodox financial rules and traditions that you each follow?
1: I used to be better at this, and you know, like I said, with the saving and investing, and all that you have to adjust for life and live outside the spreadsheet. But uh, I think, as for as long as you can, specifically after school, it's uh, de- keep that housing cost as low as you can and live as close to work as you can. Um, both those are huge, and take. Um, care of your two biggest expense or two of the three biggest expenses and housing and transportation so uh, that was a hack i did for the first three years out of pa school and it allowed me to really hit my student loans hard so that was that was key awesome
2: yeah i mean one thing we've tried to do and we're doing it right now you know in a trip we're trying to take um we have, again, specifics are more interesting for your audience. So we're trying to go to Portland, Maine and and see the band camp. I really want to see them. And uh, it's just kind of expensive, you know, to go because it's Labor Day weekend and it's only a couple sure. weeks away. And we're like, how do we afford this? Because if we're saying like, can we afford this? The answer is yes, but then it's not motivating. Like we don't have to think more about it. Instead, it's like, how can we afford this? So we're looking at our credit card miles and points and trying to figure out the best way that feels still feels good that we're not, you know, dropping this huge amount to go to, to this place and do this thing. In the end, we might still go because that might be part of our rich life and we're just going to do it. Um, but it's a better question to say, like, how can we afford this? And most of the time we can come up with an answer um, in which it actually is significantly less expensive or some sort of way to just make something work. And so, so that's one, um, sometimes we don't do it all the time, but sometimes again, with discretionary spending, if it's not something where we're buying for $2,000, like a mountain bike or something, we will take the equivalent. So let's just use $50 and then also donate 50 bucks, 50 bucks as well. Cause we feel like, well, we're, we're buying something we don't really need, but just, we want, it feels good to also donate. So let's take the equivalent and do that and so sometimes we kind of just do that and that feels good as well um, so that's something that again not 100% of the time but we we do i just feel like if i can spend this money right now i need to also look at that same pot of money and say what could i potentially give as well mm-hmm. so we do that a little bit and then lastly you know our sabbaticals we we save and spend now on those um, you know that's that's definitely unorthodox because i think a lot of people would have a hard time sort of recognizing the investment in ourselves that we're doing, you know, and trying to live our lives as we go and not just waiting, you know, to get to FI and then, then all of a sudden the doors open and, you know, we can do what we want, but instead we're trying to do it at certain intervals and whenever we can.
0: Yeah. I really love the idea of sabbaticals for a lot of people can help with burnout, but also the fact that once you reach FI, You know, hopefully you're still young and healthy, but you don't know what your body will be like or your spouse's body or things like that as well. So it's ideal to try to enjoy those experiences now along the way and not just try to reserve or save them all for once you reach five. So I really like that you do that. And then what are your guys' rules when it comes to debt, would you say?
1: Uh, Well, we all know it's bad, um, but it's also a uh, reality of life. I mean, shoot, and anyone that's a PA that's listening to this, I got to think that 90% of us had to take on some loans at some point. So inherent to our careers, we started with that. So uh, accepting that it is a reality to a point is key. Uh, What I learned early on, at least playing the game with student loans is interest rate is everything. And that's, uh, I mean, it took me a while to like, like put this in my head, but it's like obviously when your investments are earning seven percent interest, that's fantastic. And the inverse of that is when you're paying seven percent on your loans. It's the same thing. It's like, oh wow, that is a lot of money. Um, so playing the game, uh, I I did not predict the pandemic, stupidly enough. So I uh, refinanced my loans from government to private, but. True. Throughout that process, I learned the game and could get interest rates really, really low. Um, And you can do that with everything uh, as long as you're thinking about it and knowing that's an option. So uh, I think that's key to getting out of debt is having really low interest rates on the debts that you do have.
0: Yeah, definitely. Jordan, do you tend to follow the avalanche method then instead of snowball method when you're paying off your debt? Or does it just kind of depend upon what your goal or priorities are at that time, which one you want to pay off the most?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the avalanche and that changes, right. Like if I can, like at one point, my student loans were at five and a half percent and now they're down to less than two percent. And it's like that is way off avalanche, right? That's it's my biggest amount, uh, my biggest debt. But at the same time, it's so low. I'm going to focus in other places. So, uh, yeah, I definitely still play that game and adjust accordingly.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the avalanche method. That was one of my one of my rules for debt um is avalanche method we we like it better feels better i like to take the big bites first um so that's it's right on there so so happy you mentioned that um great I, minds, shane yeah great minds totally for sure um and then uh, another one i had on here was just avoiding debt if you can but sometimes you can't and that is absolutely fine
1: revolutionary thinking (laughs) right Right,
2: exactly um so yeah so i mean we're not afraid of debt but we just minimize it certain things like bigger purchases we don't have the cash to you know to to use and so we're going to have to take on debt like for instance if we get a mortgage pick up an investment property something like that so totally good with that that is absolutely fine but other things like everyday spending, credit cards, like we're paying that off every month in full. I cannot name a single month probably in the last 5 years that we have not paid in full. I mean, it's just how we do it. Um again, going back to the emergency fund, if we have to, we move just a little bit over only to replenish it the next month. So, so yeah, paying those credit cards off and so we get the advantages of the the miles and everything else and Um, they don't get much of anything from us.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I think that it's ideal to recognize that debt can get you a lot of places in life, like some student loan debt can be good for our careers, for example. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of that I think student loan debt's astronomical. You know, it's way too high in my opinion, Mm -hmm. but we don't need to touch that during this discussion. But anyway, um, moving on with debt. So some debts can get you... You know, good places, like you mentioned, real estate investing. Maybe you do go into a little bit of debt to have a rental property that's a long term rental or a short term rental, but you are generating income smartly with that debt and you're using it as leverage. So, unlike what Dave Ramsey preaches, I would say I don't agree that all debt is 100% bad, but at the same time, it still doesn't feel good, no matter what type of debt I feel like, you know, at least. I haven't done real estate investing, but maybe people who do that, they're like, oh, I, I don't mind that I have you know, several hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars worth of debt in my real estate investments. Maybe they don't mind at all because they are generating so much cash flow. So I think it is important to recognize that it's on the individual level and what feels good to you about how you approach that.
2: Yeah, that's a. Those are all great points, Kat. And I think on your way up, if I could use that term, like on your way to building something, building real estate or just your investments, most of us have to take on debt. I mean,
0: sure,
2: it, we're we're just in a place where we don't have that kind of cash to be throwing around. But as you grow and build and you, potentially, yeah, potentially you can avoid debt. But when you're starting out, especially when you're first starting out with your career. I mean, most of us have some sort of debt. We just don't have that kind of cash lying around. You have to accumulate it. You have to earn it. However, you're going to do that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then we've touched on this a little bit already, but if you have more thoughts to add, what are your rules when it comes to having an emergency fund and building it and utilizing it and things like that?
1: Shane talked about this a little bit earlier about just liquidity, right? Cash is obviously the most liquid, um, but for me, I like to have multiple things in play. So uh, having money to pull out of your HSA, especially if you have like safe receipts and you can pull that money out tax-free, there's that shoebox method game. Um, so having cash and then HSA is maybe the second or third, and then like worst comes to worst, you can pull out of your Roth if you need to. Um, so just having multiple layers of uh, emergency protection, I feel like is uh, really big, for me. And because emergency funds, especially cash, will fluctuate and that's just life. So just make sure you're protected at multiple levels. So if you're exposed in one area, you have some safety elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I think that's great to utilize different buckets when it comes to emergency fund if you can Mm -hmm. and recognize that your contributions to a Roth IRA technically can be part of your emergency fund if you want to because you don't get penalized if you pull out your contributions you would get penalized if it's the growth over time so like you said if push comes to shove maybe you do tap into that you know ideally if you're doing well and you're not having a true emergency come up you want to leave your money invested to be able to grow over the years but i think that's a good rule to think about too that you could consider that as part of your emergency fund if you want to what are your thoughts shane
2: two things i was thinking about with this um One main one overarching is, you know, don't touch the emergency fund unless we have to. But for us, it's a little different because of the sabbaticals. We kind of have to be liquid um, to do that. And so we have a threshold, we have our one year of spending, you know, we average out about $50,000 in spending per year. So we know we need at least that for a sabbatical, or that's what we think we need. So don't go below six months at any time, whether it's a sabbatical year or not. Um, And then anything significant, like 125% above what we need. So I don't know, like, That math would be $62,500 actually. So anything (laughs) above that, um, again, siphon off and make it put it to work. So that could be a high yield savings account, but don't let it just sit there. If there's, you know, if I'm getting, you know, uh, a certain amount for a high yield savings account, but I can go ahead and then invest it into a brokerage account and still have pretty reasonable access to it, and I'm getting 7%, then I'm going to move it. I don't want it to just sit there idle. And so we kind of have an absolute top end in which everything should go and be invested or go somewhere else. And then we have a bottom end in which not to go below.
0: Cool. Nice. And then what do you feel like your rules are when it comes to PA jobs in general, whether you're searching for a new one or your current PA job? What are your rules when it comes to PA jobs?
1: Oh, so many. Um I, uh, living in Colorado has been interesting. Now, I just have the viewpoint of Colorado, but um, just seeing uh, how important salary is in terms of lifestyle and your location and everything and how some places you have a lot more uh, bargaining power or negotiation power in other places not um, but just making sure that you are being reasonably compensated um, like we we help a lot of new PAs um, with like contract negotiation and just look at a lot of contracts and sometimes you'd be amazed on how much employers uh, think they can get away with paying PAs and uh, it's a little disheartening we as a whole need to um, continue to grow on that and I feel like the AAPA salary report is helpful um, but there's still other things that need to be done. So, uh, when it comes to PA jobs, salary is super important, and that needs to be remembered. But also, production pay is key. Uh, I think as a new grad, right, you just want your job, you want it, you want a paycheck, and all these things. But as you get more experience, more efficient, uh, certainly the physicians or most of the time they're getting rewarded for working hard and seeing more patients. And I think PA should be the same way. So finding a job that rewards you for that um, because if you don't, again, once you've been doing this for a while, it can be pretty
0: frustrating. Yeah. I've had roles where I'm paid straight on RVUs. So the more patients I see, the more complicated the visits are, the more I get paid ultimately I think it's more common to actually have a base salary plus RV bonus type of structure. And then I'm currently paid on a percentage of collections. So that's also a situation where the more patients I'm seeing and the more complexity. Once the clinic gets compensated from insurance or from the patients, then I get paid a certain amount. So there are different ways that this can look to be compensated for your productivity. But I feel like that it is nice. On the other hand, I have heard arguments about well, if you just get paid a really good salary, why should it matter, you know, your production? And that can be a valid approach too, again, if you are truly fairly compensated and a really great salary. But I feel like it can be more motivating a little bit to be paid on production and can almost like reassure my brain in the sense of, wow, I saw a ton of patients today, but at least I'll get paid a little bit more today, you know? So I think there's that viewpoint as well on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, at my current position the physicians are under that model but the pas are not so i I understand if you're uh, compensated appropriately sure but when it's the inverse relationship where the provider wants to see more and more and you're attached them and you're helping them and the more they see the less you make in terms of like the more work you have to do the more hours you have to spend like that to me is just mind-boggling how that's a thing because our, our brains are pretty simple right um so it we need to be rewarded
0: for working hard. No, that's valid. I think that, yeah, if you are in a specialty where you do work alongside a physician counterpart that closely versus more autonomy or more have your own patient panel or things like that, then yes, that's very valid, especially if you're getting more duties placed on you and expected to be there longer hours or again push for more and more and more, but then your compensation's not being replaced or boosted to reflect that, then I can. I agree. That doesn't seem like it's very fair or reasonable.
2: Well, I will throw in some some of my thought here uh, thoughts here when it comes to PA jobs. Um, I mean, I wrote here negotiate for more um, right for right away. Like whether you're a new grad or this is your third job, doesn't matter. Try to negotiate, get as much as you can from the from the jump, um, yeah. and then as you are settling into the role you know, learn what your metrics are, how you're being measured on things and how you could potentially earn more, right? Or be more productive. Let's say, let's start there and be more productive. That doesn't always mean more patients. That could mean just better patient, satisfaction, scores, or however, again, you got to learn the metrics and then go to the negotiation table again and try to get your raise. And when you get that raise, And that raise never happened and invest that difference, whether it's 5,000, 10,000, or do something great with it, whatever, whatever that is for you, basically going back to living your rich life with that. And then just repeat, you know, just go ahead again, back to the start, try to figure out how to earn more. And then you just sort of keep leveling up your compensation. Then when you move jobs, hopefully they, you know, will match what you were making before or even sort of go above that. And so it it all matters and it keeps you motivated too, I find anyway, if there's the potential for a pot of gold um, at the end of that rainbow of, you know, working hard for six months or working smarter, doesn't have to be harder, and then getting that raise and then just again, filing it away, investing it, here I go. You know, that's part of my journey.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that negotiation is such a huge topic that we aren't really taught very much in PA school. And- even throughout our career, you know, that is put on the side burner, like just try to get a good job. Who cares about negotiation and trying to get more either when you're starting your new job or at the six month or 12 month point in your new role where you can negotiate many different things besides just the salaries. So I think that negotiation really is key and that it's important to empower PAs out there to feel like they can negotiate.
2: Yeah. I mean, we have competing interests somewhat, right? With our employers, which is they would probably prefer to pay us as little as they have to, to do as much work as possible. That for them is the ultimate thing. And for us, you know, I'm not saying that all of us want to just sit around and, you know, sip, sip coffee, sip lattes over the course of the day. But, you know, we would prefer not to burn ourselves out. So we would prefer to get paid as much as possible to do the minimum amount of work or the amount of work that we can handle that's not going to burn us out. So, I mean, there's way more likely your employer coming to you and saying, Hey, we need to increase productivity. We're behind on, you know, by this many millions of dollars in our budget. So we need you to see one more patient per day. Like that's just probably going to happen at some point. So we might as well assume that's happening. So let's try to balance that out by trying to increase our salaries um, as well, because they're going to, again, sort of try to, turn the dial up a little bit to get you to see more patients. So you got to turn the dial up to get paid more too to balance that because otherwise they'd be super stoked for you to just go ahead and do be more productive, be more productive, and get paid the same.
0: Yeah, agreed. And then I'm curious because we're talking about Ramit's 10 money rules. He always uses the term rich life and encourages you to figure out what your rich life looks like. So what would each of your rich life look like?
1: Um, let's see here. So I try to be a little bit specific. Um, starting from the beginning, I think, uh, right now I do not want to work five days a week and that's not because I'm lazy. It's just because I want to do other things. Like, I think it's so important to have multiple other interests, whether it's being outside or, you know, bike for me, it's biking, you know, but and just doing another business, but it's, it's getting out of the nine to five doing the same job all day, every day. So, and that's very feasible in the PA world. So don't work five days a week for me. The eventual goal is to get to part-time work. And that's again, cause I, I want to work. I want to use my brain. I want to do all these things, but I want to be able to do uh, whatever I want, when I want to do it. So I, I think I tend to like move for me. I, FI sometimes seems really, really, really tough to attain. So I'm, I'm more trying to settle on the part-time work, um, for at least this point in my life, um, because uh, maybe in 20 years I'll feel different, but you know, uh, so there's that there's for me trying to, uh, start a process of, or, or, a tradition of annual international travel, uh, or at least by or every other year would be great. So starting there, um, I have a lot of negative feelings about eating out right now, and I don't want to feel that way. I want to feel like, oh, let's try this new Indian place. Fantastic. I don't want to uh, stress about that, and I definitely do right now. And uh, Like Shane said, that could just be the frugal part of me, but at the same time, i that's something me and my partner really, really enjoy. So uh, there's that teaching in some shape or form, again, having a part-time job that allows me to do teaching on the side or whether that is my primary gig, who knows. And then like we had talked about before, just having multiple streams of income. um, And then albeit hopefully passive as time goes
0: on. I think all those things are huge for me. Awesome. Those sound like wonderful goals. And like you said, you can probably implement several of them pretty quickly here for you, but also have several that are in the future. So that's a great list. What about you, Shane?
2: Yeah, I mean, I kind of have a, um, a MO right now, modus operandi that I'm I'm really trying to lock in here. And um, that's increased flexibility with work and then increased mobility in life. So that's kind of how I boiled it down and I'll just talk briefly about what those mean to me. And that's basically our rich life in a nutshell. But the work flexibility, like I really want to just... Sort of remove myself here from an office having to be in a physical location. So obviously, that you know, one thing would be remote work or something of the sort. So maybe it's just less clinical time, or maybe it's remote work still clinical, or maybe it's non-clinical remote work. Whatever it's going to look like. But um, I have a little envy. My wife has done this really nice transition from being a school teacher to, you know, doing some work from home stuff, supporting other teachers who are still in the classroom, but she's doing all this from home. And it's really opened my eyes uh, to see her still doing teaching in an education, but doing it from home and having that flexibility. Um, And so I'm really hoping that I can sort of line myself up with something um, similar in the future. And that's in regards to mobility in life, like we would, we don't necessarily want to be nomads moving all the time, but I also am sort of now questioning our, like it was historically like a five to seven year interval for a sabbatical. So a lot can happen in five years. I mean, if you go back five years, a lot has happened in the world and in our lives. And so I don't want to wait that long. Um, So hopefully we can integrate more small things in, as we go. And again, that sort of lends itself um, best and easiest to the work flexibility um, if we decide to work or not. So we're we're working towards that. I'm trying to understand for myself what that looks like and for our family. Um, but I mean, I also too live in a ski town and I see people, I don't know what they're doing for work, but they look like they're always on the ski mountain or on the mountain bike trails and they're around my age. And so I'm just like, what What do you do for work here? <laughs> so I have a little envy and a little envy of the retired folks as well who can go ski every day of the week if they want to. And so just working towards that, just changing our life a little bit. So more to, more to come on that. As time goes, but how about you, Kat? We'd love to hear, and I'm sure your audience would love to hear what your rich life is.
0: Yeah, I think that both of you touched on pieces that make up what my rich life looks like. So, definitely, the flexibility is huge. Having the option to work remotely, I work in telepsychiatry right now, which I really love working from home currently. And as you had touched on, Jordan, to part-time work, I do work part-time currently. Being able to educate, whether that's with PA the FI way or traditional PA programs. I really enjoy education and teaching future PAs and current PAs as well. And a lot of that comes down to feeling fulfillment and purpose in life too, trying to pass a lot of information and try to make it more simple and easy to understand too. And then travel is a huge piece as well. I really enjoy traveling both domestically and internationally. So basically combine what the two of you said – is a lot of what my rich life looks like as well. Um, and then I would add just continuing to be able to spend a lot of time with family. I do currently have the luxury to be able to do that because our family does live close by and my mom is super kind and she uses part of her retirement pension to sometimes fund family trips here and there. You know, So I I love that she's able to do that for our family and I'm hoping that I'm able to do that in the future with nieces and nephews or if we have kiddos down the road and things like that to be able to really use the wealth that we build to be able to fund experiences and memories over time versus you know only things as well so i think that your guys's rich lives look awesome and i'm excited to see what comes of it but thanks for sharing those
2: yeah thanks for sharing yeah, yours. thank no, thank you
0: and i really appreciate you both taking the time to have this conversation today about what remit's money rules are what Our thoughts are about them and encourage the listeners to think about those money rules or create their own and change them to what looks like would work best for their lives. So if the listeners would like to connect with you or follow you on social media, how could they do so?
1: ThePABlueprint.com is our website. Check it out. Um, we're always—we actually recently updated it, so it's looking new, looking fresh. Um, we're at the PA Blueprint on Instagram, and certainly Shane is probably the most active on LinkedIn, um, but me too to a lesser extent.
2: Yeah. So those are all great places to message us. Um... Yeah, so PABlueprint.com is probably the best place to start, and that'll get you connected to us or find us on LinkedIn. That's also a good spot.
0: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to have this conversation. I think it was full of really good information, and hopefully, we'll have future conversations as well. So thanks again, Shane and Jordan.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us on, Cap. Thank
0: you. I'm sorry. That's funny. I put it on
1: silent. Sure you did. Sure you did, Jordan. <laughs> I put on do not disturb. I put on silent.
0: That's Jordan, you're impressive. the only one that I've had like a um, blooper thing at the end of the podcast too with your with oh your um, fiancé or girlfriend coming in. So I'm not surprised that happened. Yeah. Uh,
1: staying on brand. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> sorry.
2: What is that, Russia no, calling, good. Jordan? You're... Your, your comrades <laughs> they're
0: All already right. interfering my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness that's so funny